welcome back to all of our wonderful listeners of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire's Global and the Granite State podcast. Your interest in timely discussions on international issues and New Hampshire's role in the world helps us to bring exciting programs to the state. One way that the World Affairs Council is expanding its reach is through Global Trivia Nights. We will be hosting four evening events at Southern New Hampshire University to test people's international knowledge. Please join us on September 17th at 7 p.m. for this fun and engaging evening. It is free and open to the public, and we hope to have some really great prizes. In this month's episode, we speak with Senator Maggie Hassan about cyber warfare and international terrorism. We also speak with the new founding dean of the School of Global Learning at Southern New Hampshire University to better understand their vision for a more globalized campus. Senator Hassan joined us by phone a few days ago for this wide-ranging discussion. Hello, Senator Hassan. Thank you so much for joining us by phone today. Thank you for having me, Tim. So I wanted to start off by talking about cybersecurity and cyber conflict. You spoke at our global forum this past May about the dangers posed to our country. Can you elaborate a little bit about the dangers that we see? Well, yeah. And first of all, just thank you for hosting that event. I thought it was a really interesting and educational one. One of the things I have been focusing on on the Homeland Security Committee in the Senate is the increasing and evolving nature of cyber threats against the United States. We are seeing cyber attacks from both state and non-state actors. Countries like China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea have engaged in increasingly complex cyber attacks in espionage and in influence campaigns against our government and the American people. And what we are seeing is that these countries and other hostile actors have the capability to wreak havoc on our entire economy, disrupting functions like our financial sector, defense, energy infrastructure, without even firing a shot. Specifically, Russia has targeted some of our critical infrastructure, including our energy and telecommunications sectors, not to mention their attempts to undermine America's election integrity. So we have to be prepared to combat these threats. That's a priority I've been working on as a member of the Homeland Security Committee. It's important to remember that that means working across all levels of government and making sure that the private sector and government are coordinating and sharing information, because whether it's stealing individuals' personal data or a foreign country accessing our national secrets to hackers making money by shutting down hospital systems, the threats we face are diverse and they're ever-changing, and we're seeing them play out on the ground. You know, here in New Hampshire and Stratford County, we saw an attack on the cyber system there, and the good news is Stratford County uh, had done training on this. One of their employees immediately recognized the attack for what it was. They shut the system down. They had a continuity of operations plan, but that is the kind of training and awareness that we need to be building in every sector, not only of government, but of our economy. And it's going to continue to be a real focus of mine. Speaking of Stratford County, the recent attack there, they are being held up as an example for the importance of implementing resilience plans. You recently introduced a bill advancing cybersecurity, continuing diagnostics and mitigation. How does that particular bill help with these issues? I'll just start by, again, saying the thing that was impressive about Stratford County was 
and I think your listeners probably know this, but this is county government, so they have a dispatch center, and they have a jail, and they have a nursing home, among other things. So it was really important that they recognized the attack, they were able to shut things down, so then they could turn to mitigating the impacts of the attack while they continued to serve the public, literally by going back to a pencil and paper kind of system while they got their system back up and running. So what I want to make sure is that there are additional resources available to state and local governments so that they are prepared for this kind of attack. And that's why this bipartisan bill that Senator Cornyn and I introduced is really important because it would update and improve federal agencies' cybersecurity, but then also make additional cyber defense resources available to state and local governments because preparation, mitigation, and resilience are really important here. Yeah, and I know that this has been a big topic for you. According to sources, the U.S. government is by far and away the biggest country targeted, with over 38% of attacks directed at the U.S. government. So what are some of the steps you are helping and the overall government are, are doing to implement solutions that will make our systems stronger, safer, and more resilient? There are a number of things that I'm working on. The good news, too, is that there is bipartisan focus on this and partnership on this. So one of the bills that I've worked on is the Internet of Things Cybersecurity Improvement Act. That says to all of the vendors and suppliers who want to sell the United States government any IoT, Internet of Things device, that those devices have to meet certain cybersecurity standards. That's important to improve the federal government's cybersecurity, to be sure, because remember a couple of years ago when Dyne here in New Hampshire got hacked, that hack happened through uh, Internet of Things devices. So we want to shore up our defenses in that regard as a government, but we also know that when the United States government sets standards for devices like this, they are likely to spread to other sectors too, because the manufacturers of these devices won't want to operate on multiple different standards. So that is one of the things that we've done to strengthen both the federal government, but also uh, we hope have a strong and, and appropriate ripple effect for all users of Internet of Things. And then we also have a bill that would establish cyber hunt and incident response teams in the Department of Homeland Security. And earlier this year, Senator Portman and I had our bill passed that allows for what are known as white hat hackers, kind of the good guy hackers, to work with the Department of Homeland Security to test their defenses. This is something the Department of Defense already does. They will vet and then offer a bounty to private sector computer experts who want to try hacking their systems. And then not only do these experts perform the hack, they then propose and work on solutions. And that's another way that we can make sure that our defenses are strong and that we are evolving those defenses as the attacks against us evolve. So with so many issues out there to be focusing on, including many international issues, why is cybersecurity such a focus for you? Well, I think it's really important that we remember that our first job as government is to keep people safe and that cyber warfare, cyber attacks are increasing and always evolving. And it's something that a lot of people don't know until after it's happened, right? So we haven't always paid the kind of attention that we've needed to. And what we're seeing is a number of our adversaries are utilizing 
cyber warfare because they can do it on the cheap, so to speak. It doesn't cost a whole lot. They don't have to stand up a whole army. It's hard for people to notice until after vulnerabilities have been exploited. And it can wreak true havoc on us in terms of critical infrastructure, for instance, or our election systems. So I think it's really important that we understand that these attacks are happening, that we are prepared to counter those attacks, not only to prevent them and to mitigate attacks, the impacts of them when they happen. We also need to be prepared as a country to go on the offense in this new cyber warfare arena. And it's something that we haven't focused on as a country as much as we should have. Moving on to another issue that is important to you, terrorism, clearly a huge issue both abroad and here at home. And there are still quite a few international terrorist organizations trying to disrupt global systems and attack the U.S. However, ISIS is in retreat. They're not defeated. The U.S. is negotiating with the Taliban and reports are coming out that Hamza bin Laden may have been killed a few months ago. Are we winning the global war on terror? I think it's really important to focus on the fact that all of these terrorist organizations, and you just mentioned ISIS and al-Qaeda, which are the two that we hear about the most in the news in terms of foreign terrorist organizations, but they are all organizations that, regardless of our success in killing their leadership or eliminating their caliphate, their physical caliphate in Syria, in the case of ISIS, they are continuing to work to radicalize and recruit new fighters, and they have networks all over the world. So it's increasingly important that we remember that and that we continue to do everything we can to counter their ongoing efforts to undermine our democracy and to attack us. So we have to continue to work as hard as we can to do that. And what are some of the steps that the U.S. government can take to better fight this battle of ideologies? I think, again, what's really important to just take a step back is we know that violent extremism, whether it is inspired by a foreign ideology or a homegrown ideology, is a real threat. And obviously, uh, you and I are having this conversation just after a weekend in the United States where we saw two awful mass shootings, one of which appears to have been inspired by white supremacy ideology. So it's really important that we continue to understand these threats for what they are and to understand that as they are always evolving, our efforts to counter what they do should be evolving too. So there is work we need to do to prevent radicalization in the first place. There are particular examples of ways we could do that at home when it comes to domestic terrorism and homegrown-inspired violent extremism. But in terms of the international terrorist groups, one of the things we have to do as terrorists spread around the globe is make sure that none of the terrorists who are seeking to return from the battlefield come back to the United States. And one of the things I've been working on to prevent the return of terrorists or the arrival of terrorists from other parts of the world to our country is to strengthen and grow the number of visa security teams we have. These are teams where we have counterterrorism experts side by side with State Department personnel who help them vet applications, for instance, for visas. That's one of the things we could do to prevent terrorists who have been seeking to leave one part of the world from coming back here to the United States. Okay, one final question for you. 
as a member of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security, what are some of the biggest and most important security threats facing the United States today? Our first job is to keep Americans safe. That's the first job of any government. And it means we can't take our eye off any of the balls that are out there that pose threats to our country. We've talked today about the threat that cyber attacks can pose. Uh, We've talked about international terrorism, and we've talked about domestic terrorism. All of those are significant threats, and we have to do as much as we can to, again, adjust our defenses to make sure that we are fighting terrorism and keeping our cyber systems safe. I will say that I would like to see our country have a more coherent strategy when it comes to combating international terrorism, better relationship with our allies because we need strong alliances in order to combat al-Qaeda and ISIS wherever they may be in the globe and to prevent them from coming back to our country. We need also to make sure that we are strong at home. There are prevention efforts that we can take, particularly when it comes to homegrown domestic extremism, especially around ideologies like white supremacy. And one of the things I'd like to see this administration do is refund some of the task forces and operations that we had to really try to root out domestic terrorism and counter it. And lastly, one of the things that security and intelligence experts have been telling us for some time now is that when our adversaries see Americans divided at home and turning against each other, they will take advantage of that. To them, that signals that we are vulnerable because we are spending more time arguing with each other than we are on focusing on the threats against us. And I think it is really important that we work as hard as we can to put partisanship aside when it comes to our national security, that we honor and have confidence in our intelligence community, and that we remember that it is our love of freedom as Americans that has always been our common bond and has allowed us not only to develop the strongest military and economy in the world, but also to lead the world as a force for good. And one of the things I really hope all Americans are thinking about, particularly this week, is that we need to be strong as a country together in order to combat these many threats that we have all around the globe. Threats are there, but we know that there are ways we can combat them, and we know that there are ways we can stand up for freedom. And that's what I'm committed to doing, and that's what I'm hoping we can all remember as we move forward to continue to protect our country, keep our people safe so we can all thrive together. Certainly a lot to think about. So thank you again, Senator Hassan, for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. Thanks so much, Tim, for having me, and thanks for everything you all do. To set the stage a little, the state of international education here in the U.S. has been on the decline for the past couple of years. International student enrollments are down, and while study abroad is increasing, only about 10% of students actually take advantage of it. It is against this backdrop that Southern New Hampshire University decided to create a new school, the School for Global Learning. We sat down with the founding dean of this new school, Dr. Deborah Leahy, to talk about her vision for making the campus more global and creating global citizens from Southern New Hampshire University. 
We are here with Deborah Leahy, the founding dean of the new school at Southern New Hampshire University, the School of Global Learning. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Can you tell us just a little bit about the new school, why it was founded, and what the vision is for it? Certainly. So a lot of the vision is focused on internationalizing the campus. And there will be a lot of aspects of that. While certainly we'd like to have more international students on campus, as any college or university may want to do, we want to make certain that the campus here is also prepared for a more pluralistic environment. So I'll be looking at partnerships abroad to see if we can bring in more international learners, but at the same time looking at our own domestic student population and what we do here in Southern New Hampshire on campus. Aspects such as does our curriculum carry enough global themes? Does it imbue in students' global perspectives? Because one thing that's great about Southern New Hampshire University is that we are very focused on breaking down barriers to education, but we also want to make certain we're looking at what the student can do once he or she graduates. And having more global perspectives, the ability to work, live, flourish in a more interconnected world, that carries through our breaking down barriers to access. It really opens up the world to the students. So looking at the curriculum, you know, if we're teaching courses in environmental science, anything from that to graphic design, how are we bring in a, a broader based perspective for all students, and then how are we making certain that they bring that with them beyond where they go. Also looking at extracurricular, we have great international student services here, but how can we also spread that around the entire campus so it's not just contained to a certain segment of students, and also looking at extracurricular, you know, can we do more project-based learning that actually brings in a global perspective, perhaps with partners abroad or doing projects that have carry a more of a worldwide impact, hopefully getting to a point where we're also looking at global social challenges and engaging our students and our faculty and perhaps scholars and addressing those. So you mentioned bringing more programming onto campus. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how this new school fits into the wider structure of the university? Yes, so it really should be pervasive, the new school. One thing I'm really safeguarding against is having it, like I said, either be focused on a certain segment of students or a certain segment of programs. And beyond that, eventually the new school will bring on some academic programs, and that's something I'm very excited about. But working with what we have right now is important to see what we already have in place and where global perspectives may be embedded, integrated, and so forth. But at the same time, looking at, we do want to bring in more global learners. And when I say global learners, I mean international students who are traveling to be here, you know, residents in the region, state, and the nation that might benefit from coming to a program. Eventually, we will build programs within the school, but we really want to make certain that first we address what we already have, and then that we assess where the needs are. I think there's a lot of assumption making in higher education sometimes about what international students want to learn, but we had to look at what international students want to learn at Southern New Hampshire University and how to draw upon our legacy and our strengths and then build something new from there. So as far as the programming, that's to be determined, but it will will take a very measured approach and making certain that we integrate our international students with our domestic students in doing so. Why did Southern New Hampshire University decide that now was the time to double down on international? Well, I think most people, when they think of Southern New Hampshire University, they think of one of our models, which is always challenging the status quo. So right now, a lot of colleges and universities are struggling to bring international students onto their campuses. There are a lot of reasons for that, you know, some involving political climate, you know, some things actually even just involving competition or a lot of places building their own endogenous higher education systems with which we aren't competing and perhaps we don't want to. So as colleges and universities in the United States see a slowdown in the number of international students come to their campus, 
they're concerned. I mean, you know, they, they want to make sure they have a good mix of global learners on their campus to mix with their domestic students. If we start seeing those numbers dwindle, that's really harmful to higher education. That's really harmful to our country as a whole because obviously we want um, diversity of ideas in all that we do. So because Southern New Hampshire University is all about challenging the status quo, what the feeling here is that we don't want to retreat on our goal to bring in more global learners. If anything, we want to double down, if not triple down on that and make certain that we're bringing in global learners to our amazing campus here. And we also don't want our domestic students to graduate never knowing people with whom they would not otherwise encounter in their day-to-day -day lives. So we don't want their students who are from the region here who are going to come to Southern New Hampshire University. We're so proud of them coming here, but we want them to leave here saying, hey, I, you know, I got to do a project with some people who taught me about you know, religions and other areas, politics, with their own backgrounds. So we want to make sure that the narrative, the experience, the outcomes that any student leaves here with is based on an understanding of how people around the world think, study, work, and so forth. I know it's early, only your 15th day on the job as of today, but can you give us a little bit of what you envision for this new school? What you've talked that there very may well be some programs coming on board. Do you guys have any sense of where this is going long term? Absolutely. Two things that come to mind right away, because it is, as you said, it's new, so it's really boundless what we can do with it. But one matter that's come to my mind is that when I started at Southern New Hampshire University, even before I came here, I started to realize that a lot of people are doing things that are for the betterment of global learning. But there isn't any place where that's cataloged or even you know, discussed, captured. So if a student comes here and he or she you know, engages in different activities, say study abroad, engages in um, student services with global learners, there's no way for them to have a demarcation of that when they graduate. We're also not measuring right now what it does to their understanding of the world. So two things that come to mind is one is creating better frameworks by which we can intentionally embed global learning but then measure it. So a student can walk out knowing how he or she you know, really matured or benefited or learned from these engagements and carry that with them. But then also as an institution, we can look at what is this particular class or this particular program or the university as a whole what does it embed with students to make them more world prepared? So that's very important as far as that measurement and being able to show what students have learned. And then tracing that back to figure out, well, what other programming can we do if we saw gains in this area, but we didn't see gains in that, that area? How can we capitalize upon more high impact learning and activities to help students be more globally aware? So I'm hoping a year from now, we can step back and say, well, look at the difference we made in this program, in this course, in this activity, in this student's individual life. And we can really show, you know, the, the, the difference that global learning makes and become, you know, more thought leaders in that as well. You've mentioned that you're not only focusing on international students here on campus, but also the wider community. How can people get involved with the work that you're going to be doing? Yes, partner, partner, partner. <laughs> so um, we can't do it alone, and we don't want to do it in a bubble. You know, we have a great campus here with a lot of constituents and stakeholders, but at the same time, we have to look outside, whether it be Manchester, whether it be New Hampshire, whether it be New England. And so the, what I'm asking is anyone who even thinks there's a slight partnership opportunity to, to talk with me, to talk with uh, my team, and we can see how we can connect. We're also looking at ways in which you know we can use different models. So I had talked about ways that we can take what students have gained here and have a demarcation they can put on their, their resume, their LinkedIn, and so forth. Different organizations around here are offering different you know thought leadership training, 
volunteer services is a way for us to also take those experiences. You know, if someone has worked with a very diverse population, say in New Hampshire, is there a way for us to capture what they were doing, have them come into SNHU, take that experience and maybe codify it into credits or some kind of recognition and then have it link in with their learning. So I think SNHU has been great about breaking down the barriers or boundaries or even the subtle lines that can exist between a university and its region. So I think this school can also carry on that tradition and look at what are the unique experiences that people have outside of here and then bring that into the university experience. In the past couple of years, you received your doctorate of education in international higher education. Where did your interest in international come from and why were you interested in this founding dean position? Sure. A couple of experiences in my life have planted seeds. One is early on, I did work with um, immigrant populations in Cambridge and Somerville. And I kind of entered into it casually and thought, I'll just you know, see what this means. I always like to teach, so I'll, I'll see what this means. And I got very immersed in Catholic Charities and where I was you know, located. I created their original um, ESL program. I created the citizenship program to help guide students toward of all, all ages from all kinds of areas to help them prepare for citizenship. So I took a lot of pride in that and then stopped doing that. But then also beyond that, so I'm piecing these together. I studied post-colonial literature for graduate studies. So I've always had a fascination about how knowledge crosses borders. So whether that knowledge be based on people crossing borders, companies crossing borders, or programs of study crossing borders, that's always been of interest to me. But I've been a lifelong educator. I started higher education as far as a career very young. I paid my own way through college. So I've been working in higher education a long way. So I was trying to figure out how to marry these, you know, I wouldn't say divergent, but more on the side studies and my volunteer work with my career. So what I decided is I found one of the more rare, because they haven't been that easy to find, international higher education doctorate programs. And it was great, you know, I learned a lot about global student mobility, basically how knowledge crosses borders. And I got an amazing chance to do an intensive case study in Singapore, where I looked at how when you export higher education from the United States to another country, how do you make certain that it's relevant to the region and the students. And so it made me want to come to a place, and I was I was very selective about where I would come, a place where borders could open. And I think Southern New Hampshire University is ideal for that. Like I said, breaking down barriers to access can expand now to looking at it globally. And one thing in my doctoral studies that I became very passionate about is looking at the bi-directional flow of learning. So sure, if students come here, which we would love that, and they learn at a Southern New Hampshire University, how can we then go to where they've originated, whether it be our faculty, whether it be our students, whether it be nurture scholars, and how can we then go to where they've originated and gain our own global knowledge base and have bi-directional flow of global learning? One final question for you. What, in your vision, does a well-rounded global learner look like? Able to break down ethnocentrisms and able to go through the world without making judgments about people, but at the same time, it's one thing to say that students will go into the world and not make judgments about people, but at the same time to draw from people who have different backgrounds and different narratives and see those people as a resource to their own personhood. So, you know, I think based on speaking from an educator's perspective, that will differ when you want to look at it more tangibly, depending on what you know students are studying. But I do think, especially, you know, in the time that we live in right now, to make certain that when we value difference, we, we recognize difference and we value it, but we ask how it can enhance our own sense of personhood. And I hope that students leave here and when we gather testimonials, they say, you know, I went to this 
amazing university in southern New Hampshire, and I came out as a global citizen. And that's a longer-term goal, but I, it's certainly, I think, a goal we can reach. Where can people find out more about the school? Absolutely. They can contact me because, uh, as you said, it's a founding role, so I can't say I have leagues of people out there. We certainly do have you know, people out in the field recruiting and so forth for students, but I would ask them to contact me directly, and I am at d.lehy, so it's d.leahy at snhu.edu, and I am open for conversations. I'm starting to learn where the good coffee is in Manchester, so first cup is on me. Great. Well, thank you again. We're here with Dr. Deborah Leahy, the founding dean of the School of Global Learning at Southern New Hampshire University. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you to you all for taking the time to listen to the Global in the Granite State podcast. We really appreciate your support and hope to see you at a number of our upcoming events. You can find out more at our website at www.wacnh.org. Until next month.